Just such a great vibe this morning and just being together and uh, as the summer is kind of winding down, it's just so great to be together as a church family and really just really excited you're here and really excited about the days to come and so it's good to see, good to see you. I think what we're going to do right now is we're going to jump right in. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. You may want to turn on your Bible for most of you. And just for those of you, just I forgot to let you know, if you're brand new, actually this is for everybody. One of the things we're hoping to do, parents, just to speed up kids' check-in, what I think we'll do, we can't move that center in because of power. There's the self-check-in station. So what we're going to do is you can check your kids in, oh, that's talking to us. Does anybody have the interpretation? Anybody want to have the interpretation for that? Um, it's, what's that area in Arizona everybody's going to? Area 51, is it? They're coming. They're coming for you. Um, what we'll do is when you arrive, just hit, uh, check your kids in. You can bring them in for worship, and then you can uh, take them to the door during that break time. That'll help uh, uh, along the way just to speed things up. It's just so cool to see the kids and the students and everybody going to their different experiences. But Ephesians chapter 5. Now, There's a stool here, partly because today is more of probably a teach than it is a preach. Some of you know what I'm talking about. This text is an interesting one in Ephesians 5, because we've been walking really slowly through the letter of Ephesians. And it's so funny, I have the opportunity as a pastor to do weddings. And you do not know this person, so don't go in your mind, because I do weddings of people you don't know. But a few years ago, I did a wedding, and the bride was very adamant that I not use this particular text in the homily in the wedding. There were very clear instructions from her. No talk of submission and headship. And I'm a nice guy, so I uh, obliged and didn't use this text. But every time somebody says this, With little arrogance, I promise. I always think, man, people don't understand the context of the Bible. And so this is the one we're going to get into. Now, here's the funny thing, is I was talking to a family member yesterday, and they were, because I I I did a wedding of a couple in our church yesterday, which is great. Uh, They got married, Jessica and Jared, and so we were talking with, I was talking with this family member about weddings and homilies, and he said, he used this text and he was talking about Ephesians 5, 21 and so forth, and he was reading it and explaining it in the wedding, and somebody, one of the, I think the mom, on the second row was going, mmm, mmm, and he thought it was good. He's like, oh man, a little bit of encouragement at the wedding, and then he realized the tone turned pretty quick to like, mmm, 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 and here the poor guy is trying to like read the Bible and like the mmm, mmm from the second row. So, I say all this to say, I know we're in a unique cultural moment when we come around these words, but every time I come to these texts, I begin to realize that a lot of us have taken Paul very wrong in his approach and how countercultural and subversive what he's doing in these texts are. And I think it's actually going to say some things to us. You with me? So what we're going to do is you have your thumb or you flipped on Ephesians chapter 5, but I think one of the ways to get up, kind of to create a frame for us around this is to start in the beginning. And you're like, oh my goodness, how long is this going to be? I promise it won't be that long. But, you know, look at Genesis 1. It says, verse 4, God saw that the light was good. 
Then verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and it was the earth brought forth vegetations, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was verse 16 and God saw that it was verse 21. So God created the great uh, sea creatures and every living creature that moves and at the end God saw that it was verse 25, God saw that it was Good. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, all of it, and behold, it was very good. Now, this creation narrative, like the poetic energy here, is incredible. And one of the things, obviously, we translate it from Hebrew into English. If you were to read this in Hebrew, the Hebrew people, you'd just feel it. You'd feel the rhythm. You know what I'm talking about? You would feel it. It's good, and it's good, and it's good. And it's very good. And you would feel this as a reader, but you flip one chapter. Remember, there's no chapter verses in the original text. You keep reading this narrative. And then verse, chapter 2, verse 18 says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so we see in the garden narrative that man and woman would partner together. They'd come together in this thing called marriage, a cod, that they would come together as husband and wife and become one flesh. Now, I know the moment we're in when you hear helper, that God made a helper for him, you're like, oh, 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 I, you're already shut off. You're going to play Angry Birds. You're, 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 she gone, right? That's what I say, she gone. Um, but you know, it, what's interesting about this word helper is that it talks about coming together to achieve a goal. The best way to look at this word, it's the word ezer or ezer in Hebrew, is to think of it as a like opposite. In the garden, God brings like opposites together. It's not a personal assistant, right? It's a partnership. Tim Keller says it like this. They, humans, male and female, are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different, but they are differentiated such that together they can create a complete whole. Each sex is gifted for different steps. I love this, what he says, in the same great dance. What's crazy about this word ezer is that this is the word that God uses for the helper, but then throughout the Hebrew scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, this is actually the word that God uses for himself. Can I get, where, where are the ladies at? Come on, people. This is, like, it speaks of reinforcement, of, of coming alongside in strength. There's a distinct mission that's going on in the garden marriage here. And so more than just tax write-offs and guilt-free sex, right, Marriage is where life is cultivated. It's the place in space, just like in the beginning. You make something of the world. Two people come together. You work and you create and you multiply. Crazy. One of, you know, we're called into this beautiful picture of husband and wife coming together. The reason why Heather and I were late this morning is because my dad's pastored in this city for 25 years. And it's my mom and dad today, their 40th anniversary. And so we were over at their church this morning for a bit, just celebrating them. This long life that you're called to uh, as lives come together. So the crazy thing in God's eyes is that the point of marriage isn't marriage. The point of marriage is mission and partnership and coming 
to God. And so we get this beautiful rhythm and picture in the garden that everything is good. It's not good for man to be alone, but everything begins to unravel. Uh, sin ruptures the whole story at the seams. You flip one chapter over in chapter 3, verse 16. You, uh, in these verses, you begin to see that through this rebellion, there's curses laid out. Um, so to the woman, it's like there's going to be pain in ch- childbearing, and I've been there four times, and I just echo. it. not painful for me as much, right? But for, you know, those giving birth, that is not the most fun thing in the world, right? But then he says to the woman, so he says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and painful labor you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Interesting. Now, is this pre-sin or post-sin? This is post the unraveling of the world. What's interesting is that chauvinism is actually a product of the fall. Inequality, which we've seen for millennia in human history, inequality is a product not of the garden and what God believed for shalom in this marriage. Inequality is a, is a product of the fall. And so we know this, the divorce rate right now, and me, there's many in our community that have experienced this. We're all a, a degree or two away from divorce. If you're a millennial, we're really the first generation where divorce was normalized and we're seeing the effects of that. But nearly twice, so the divorce rate is nearly twice the fate it was in 1960, in 1970. 89% of all births were to married partners, but today that's about only 60%. Over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only, had 50, but only 50% were in 2008. So uh, in 1960, it was 70, over 70%. Now it's about 50%. And people are getting married just as much. I saw and read an article this week that it's just typically later in life. So eight out of 10 people way back, this was 50 years ago, in their 20s and early 30s would marry, 8 out of 10, 80%, and it's still 80%. That's just being pushed now in, uh, to people's 40s. And people have all sorts of opinions about marriage and family. Chris Rock says this, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> I push against that, but anyways. Uh, Tara Parker Pope uh, wrote an article recently, I guess it's a few years old now, in the New York Times, and she titled it this, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. In quotes, this is what she says. The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore, she says. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are now looking for a partnership. And they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. Interesting how the shift over, like, my parents' generation, you just kind of, you entered into marriage without as much thinking about yourself, that's completely changed. Now Keller would say marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, and now it is a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. So you have this current moment, you have, so you have the text for us, thousands of years old, you have the current moment we live in, and then you have the moment that the text was written in, which was the first century in the ancient Mediterranean, 
where there was a whole culture in and of itself around household roles. Um, husband and wife, parents and children, and we're going to get into it in a couple minutes. It's, it's an interesting dialogue for us. Um, master and servant or master and slave. Sometimes you read that word in the New Testament, you go, what? Um, it's interesting how Paul's actually going to get into how all of these relationships work together. But in the Greco-Roman context, just when it comes to marriage and to male and female, amongst the wealthy classes, women were pledged in marriage to male heirs to perpetuate the family name. And so this was usually done. They were usually married off before reaching puberty with no choice as to who they married. These obviously... these. Relationships obviously ended in divorce as males were notorious in the first century for divorcing and remarrying. And what it did is it left women vulnerable. Actually, some of the laws you even see in the Hebrew scriptures, they may seem really weird for us now, but they were protective for the women of that day. Extramarital relationships in the Greco-Roman world were common. This created what one scholar calls an extramarital sexual economy where wealthy Romans looked to their poor counterparts in culture for such relationships and made it financially advantageous for them to participate in these acts. Sound familiar? I mean, there's th some things have changed in the last 2,000 years, but there is a lot in our context. Sometimes we just sweep under the rug. One person said this. They said, this created a highly unstable sense of family in the empire where children were born in marriages of convenience and usually experienced the loss of one more parent in their childhood. Another said it was typical for husbands to be authoritative, selfish, neglectful, and mostly absent. So you have the text. You have all these things going on. You have our moment, and then you have their moment. And in and amongst their story, these little communities get together, and because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, they start to gather together in homes as the church to celebrate Jesus around meals, like a potluck style probably, because a new king is on the scene. And now one of the things that Paul believes is that this new humanity called the church is to live out the gospel, not just in the public sphere, but in their homes. Paul here shifts the letter now to talk about household stuff because the gospel is supposed to be evident in the Christian home. And so one of the things Paul does here in this text, he calls marriage a mystery. <laughs> Anybody with me? Anybody married, you're like, yeah, that some, about sums it up. And one, he actually, the word he uses in the original language is mega mystery. And Heather's in kids right now, so I can just say whatever I want. It's amazing. <laughs> but it is true. It's true. So let's read the text. And I give you all that background so that you're just hang with me. Don't let this now go just over your head or, you know, oh, that was thousands of years ago and we've evolved. Really? Yeah, anyways. Verse 21, submit to one another, Paul says, out of reverence for Christ. 22, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And this is where the person on the second, second row is going, mm, 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 mm,
Mm, right. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, here's the thing. A little language. We've got to wrestle through some of the language stuff. But in verse 21, this is the call for everybody. This is what Paul means, not just for husband and wife, but we're going to see in a second, for parents and children and for slaves and masters in the, in the economy of the Roman Empire. Here's the point. Everybody's supposed to submit to one another. In a culture that's all over the place, in the church, we do this and we submit our lives together. Now, what's interesting is that in the original language, this is actually how the text would look. We have people that translate it for us in English, but it's interesting, the word submit is only in verse 21. It calls everybody to submit to each other, and then in verse 22, it's probably better translated, wives, to your, wives as to your husband as to the Lord. What, now, that may not make a lot of, that's not a huge deal, but it's just interesting that a lot of times people want to start in verse 22, and the word submit is not even in verse 22, it's in verse 21, and it's calling who to submit to each other. You with? Everybody. This is not like a woman are called to do one thing and men aren't called to do the other. No, no, you're reading it completely wrong. And actually in the Greek language, the call is for everybody to submit to each other. And then Paul gets in to how this is all going to work. You, you picking up what I'm putting down? That word submit isn't even in verse 22. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't submit to each other. I'm just saying everybody should do that. All of us should do that. The word is upotasso, submit. It means this mashed up word, this compound word. It means to place under. Upo meaning under and tasso to place in order. It literally means to give allegiance, to tend to the need of, to be responsive to. And so submission to each other is the new characteristic of the new humanity, the church, because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not a feminine ideal exclusively and it's not a masculine ideal exclusively Mutual submission is for all of us. Nod your head if you're with me, brothers. Can you just give me a little head nod? All right, I know it's the summer. I'm sweating under my arms. It's all good. Now, mutual, here, here's what I want you to catch. Mutual submission in this culture, in the Greco-Roman society, would have challenged human relationships to the core because they lived in a hierarchy. And all these different dynamics that I just talked about in the Roman, Greco-Roman worlds were at play. So this does not have to do with male authority. It does not. It has to do with everybody submitting to one another. So verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now headship is such an interesting thing. First of all, I don't know if you can throw the next slide up. Thanks, brother. There are a, a few words for head in the Greek language. I know we're doing language stuff, but it helps us understand the totality of what Paul is saying here. There is the one word, arhe, is one of the words that was used when they talked about head. And it meant beginning or origin. And this word arhe was used when it talked about hierarchy or leadership as one over the other. 
What's really interesting, though, is that Paul doesn't use this word arhe when he talks about headship. Hmm. So, like, how many people start in verse 22 with, wives submit, and I'm the head of you, blah, right? Like, we get, there's these things we create in our brains. The word that Paul actually uses is the Greek word kephale. It is a body part. It was used as a body part. But as well, the better meaning is the source, means source or originator or source of life, meaning it, it talks about chronology more than it does authority. And I actually think this is a great, great picture. Paul is not like throwing down authoritative things on everybody. And I think his word choice here, we need to take notice of. Hanging with me? But here's the thing. Here's what we do. We come to the word headship and we divide, we tend to pick up the definition of headship defined by the culture. Do we not? So we get squirmy about headship, like, oh my, how could somebody be the head? Because we just think in our broken, fallen uh, culture, we just have these things that we place in our, our minds, things like this, d- dominant and aggressive. When you think of headship, think of like dominant and aggressive, or looking to be served, or arrogance, or demanding, or powerful, or self-serving. Sometimes when we talk about headship, we think of things like being unwilling to compromise or whoever is the head has the final say. Can I just take a little commercial and say, I do not have the final say in my home. We'll get there in a second. And, that, and Heather's amazing. I don't, that's not disparaging on her. But I've heard this. Like headship is, well, you have, man, you have the final say. That, that's a, more of, I would say, a cultural definition. Headship speaks of it being about me. And if you don't like to use the word headship, I mean, it's there, kephale is the word. But here's what I think. In our moment, we should probably think, because Paul does it here, headship is like who? Sunday school answer, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus, you got it. 10 points for you. You can go have a snack right now if you want. They got Kool-Aid jammers, bro. It's amazing. (laughs) I bought them this week. Everybody's like, everybody starts leaving on us. Stay, I promise. Um, Yeah, I think we need to think through the word headship and the biblical, the cultural definition of headship is all this stuff. The biblical definition of headship that Paul gives before us is Jesus. If you want to be the head or get an understanding of the head, this is what it's like. Humble, humility, compassion, being selfless, looking to serve those around him, life-giving, meek, You know, it's interesting. Jesus didn't stiff arm anybody. He just invited people to follow him in love. That's what headship is. If you want to talk about headship, he loves so much, even to his death, laying his life down. And ultimately, one of the things that Jesus does as the head is he leads people that are in relationship with him to human flourishing. Now, my question is this. I have a young daughter, and I got to be careful because I don't want to talk about her too much. She just turned 11 last week, so like the, the sermon illustrations are going away, or, or I'm going to have to pay her or something. Um, but my question with this is if Paul is speaking of the male here in the form of headship like this, what woman would not want a man like this? The Jesus way. Like, we, we pick these things up in our culture. I'm like, man, I can't, I'm really struggling with this word. Who, uh, I kind of would love this for my daughter. Now, we'll, we'll get there someday, like in 25 years from now, right? Um, just, you know, that late marriage thing. I'm all right with that. It's good. Because I know some of the boys. I, 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 I do have a front porch. I don't have a gun, but I have a front porch. And I will sit on it. And I will be intimidating. Very intimidating, I promise. What kind, <laughs> 
what kind, I mean, the picture Paul is painting here is headship is Jesus. We get so caught up on the words. Now, he goes on to say this. He gives the example. Now, as, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And listen to the language here. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now, we pick this up, we read it, your morning devotion or whatever, and you're like, okay. And it just kind of goes by us. But I had the opportunity when I was in seminary to sit under, she was actually a mentor for a year in our mentor group in seminary. Her name is Cynthia Westfall. She's the leading scholar on women theological studies. She wrote a book a couple years ago that's world-renowned. She's an amazing lady. And she points out that what Paul is doing here is he is attributing to Jesus woman's work. In that culture, I'm just the paper boy, but in that culture, this was what she's putting on Jesus of the washing was actually woman's work. Like you'd read this in the, in the Greco-Roman world and what he's, she, uh, he's doing is laying this on Jesus as woman's work. She says this, the nature of Christ's actions toward the church and the husband's action towards the wife in Ephesians 5, the text we're reading here, would have been understood as woman's work. The representation of the church as the bride would have been effeminate according to the Greco-Roman values. Consequently, Paul is subverting male privilege in the home and church. He promotes a model of servanthood and low status consistent with the humility of Christ's incarnation precisely for men who have power and position in the Greco-Roman social system. Do you hear this? So there's male power in the home and the what Paul's... So you go to Brescia and at great school and there's... There's literally courses where they'll talk about how sexist the Apostle Paul was. There's literal case studies on Paul. He's doing exactly the opposite. He's doing, sorry, I get geeked up. Sorry, I just, some preachers yell. I never yell. I'm sorry. Guys, he's doing exactly the opposite. In the Roman world, he, he's not making all this stuff up that we take now as it being oppressive to him. He's doing absolutely the opposite by assuming on Jesus this effeminate work just to show that everything is subverted. The stereotypes that are in the Greco-Roman worlds, we may not feel the weight of it because we live in an, in an egalitarian society, but man, Paul is giving the most beautiful picture for marriage in the church. You with me? I'm very passionate about this. We're very big, um, not because of our cultural moment here, but because I actually think the Bible and what Paul is writing is way ahead of its time. We have other teachings online that we've done around the role of women in the church and uh, how we approach that here. But I just sometimes want to shout from the rooftops when somebody says, hey, don't bring up submission and headship in my wedding. I just go, man, you just, I don't want to be arrogant, but you just don't, you just don't get it. You don't understand what, what is being said here. Now, Time for some practical stuff on marriage, all right? Um, this is really hard, because I'm just, Heather, and I, Heather would just laugh if she's sitting here, because we are far from perfect. And I'll be honest, I'm jaded a little bit by the 25-year-old couple on Instagram and their influencers giving advice on marriage. Anybody with me? Like, we've been married six months, we want to go live and just let you know, like, uh, five keys to marriage, and you're like, bro, like, come on. Like, for, like... Seriously, like, I just sat, and I love my parents, I just sat in, a, in a, like a little ceremony of 40 freaking years. I'll just say this, and I mean it in the best way, uh, 
It's the hardest thing ever. Marriage, we just need to be more honest. It's really, really hard. And um, in our case, we have a pretty egalitarian uh, marriage. I've noted even here, like, I don't believe that it's my authority over Heather. We're in partnership together. I take the like opposite picture that the scriptures give and take it very, very seriously. But I do think there's some general wisdom to what Paul is trying to say to us in the church. Now, here's the thing. Not everybody will be married. And guys, those of you that may not, um, and that sometimes it's a decision, we will just want, you are a huge part of this community. Um, we've talked about singleness and the value of singleness. I'll just remind you that our Messiah and our greatest theologian in the church ever, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, both gave up their rights to be married for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus talks about that. And some of you may do that, and that's amazing. I'll just say this. Marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of your spouse. Marriage is a, a sacrificial, laying down, upotasso commitment to the good of your spouse. So here's the thing. I just want to encourage you, if you're single, do not marry on the sole basis of being happy. <laughs> Some people are laughing, and they're like, yeah, you learned that pretty quickly, right? Don't marry on the sole basis of being happy. People ultimately, the greatest reason people marry is to be happy, and the greatest reason for divorce in studies is because I'm not happy, right? Don't marry just on the sole basis of happy. Now, some of you are thinking, what about this idea of like the one? Have you heard this? Like there's the one out there somewhere out there for me. Um, can I just say that that is more urban legend than it is Bible? Uh, I don't... I don't prescribe to that. The long-standing urban legend that there's a mythical creature out there somewhere, probably next to a unicorn, uh, who can complete you, is not, not the Jesus way. Is this true? I don't think so. This idea actually comes from Greek mythology. Some of you guys have maybe read uh, Plato's Symposium. And this is where we get this. According to Plato, humans were originally androdynous. Each had four arms, uh, four legs, two sets of genitalia, male and female, and one head made up of two faces. So these four-legged, two-faced humans became a threat to the gods in the pantheon, but the pantheon didn't want to destroy them. If they did, they would lose their worship. So Zeus, the king of the gods, it goes, split humans into two, cutting their strength in half and doubling their number of worshipers, which is a pretty good thing to do as a god, I think. Very genius. So Plato writes... That ever since then, we've been searching for our missing half. That's Greek mythology. The Jesus way, I think, is that the point of marriage isn't to find our missing half. It's to engage in a life where we help each other become all that God is intended. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The Christian answer really is the fact that two people aren't compatible. Can I tell you the truth? That's the truth. Um, I think we need to be more honest about this. Uh, marriage is not necessarily about being compatible. Now, if you are, that's amazing. But I love Stanley Hauerwas. He's a theologian. Some of you know him. He's hilarious. He's an old guy. And he says this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment. There it is again. Necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. And it's so true. He goes on. We never know who we marry. 
And can I just say, uh, I'm a little more introspective, so oftentimes I will turn over to Heather and I'll say, do we really know each other? Dude, like, after all these, and she'll say, shut up. We've committed to do this. Move along, right? Yeah, but I just want to search my soul. Do we really, like, on a soul level know each other? We never know whom we marry, Howard says. We think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while or he or she will change. For marriage, being, uh, being the enormous thing that it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning, the primary problem is this, learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Heather's right. I hate that. I hate that. But it's so true. Don't marry on the basis of being happy. But I'll also say this. Your sp- and this is where it gets funky in the church. Your spouse is not to be a substitute for God. Life with God then flows out in these relationships. Keller puts it this way. Both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They're looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires, and that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will ever find the right person to marry. We've seen this. It's very, very dangerous when the expectations become really high. I always say, be the kind of person you would want to marry. And I think all of us have grace for ourselves, and that should perpetuate in our relationships around us. I'll also say this. Kingdom-minded marriages have a mission at hand. This is why it's really hard. So kingdom-minded marriages have a mission at hand. This is why it's really hard when one spouse is in the kingdom and another isn't. We want to get all rigid, like, can I date or can I, you know, see somebody that isn't a follower of Jesus? Well, we're not caught up in a religion. It's a worldview. And that makes it really hard because if Jesus is everything, you kind of want that in another person. That would be top priority. And so sometimes, this was the classic when we did youth and young adult ministry. Everybody's like, hey, can I, you know, date this girl who doesn't really want anything to do with the kingdom? Well, you can kind of do whatever you want. But I'm telling you, when it's a worldview, this decision is massive. And so we need to think through it. Marriage having a mission at hand, far greater than us when we're on our own. Now that's all I have to say about marriage here. I think Paul is very clear that the idea is mutual submission to everybody. Um, We do have some resources. I have quoted a lot of Tim Keller here. His little book, it's not little, uh, his book, The Meaning of Marriage, that he wrote with his wife is, I would say, if you're married, is a must read. Um, you'll be like, whoa, this whole sermon was him. Sorry, but I just ripped a ton off from him because he's been a huge, (laughs) huge, uh, huge help. We also have this thing that we enter into a little bit called Prepare and Enrich. We use it for pre-marriage counseling. It's a survey that um, helps with some results around different areas in your life that's super helpful. But there's also an, an enrich portion of that that we can lead you into if you've been married for a while. If you just wanna like, you know, go deeper and learn and, and uh, you need some resources. I think it's about $35 to take the survey and uh, we can sit together or you can just take it on your own. It is, um, I think, something really valuable down the road. The call is to submit to each other. Now, here's the problem. How are we doing for time? Somebody yell at the time for me. Anybody? Oh, oh, 11.49. Okay, well, we already came to the tables, so I promise we won't be too, too long. But the one thing that we do wrong here is we think that this is just about marriage. What Paul is doing here is just about marriage. But there are no chapter and verse headings in the Bible. And I think what Paul has to say in the preceding verses 
actually fall in line. It's not just about marriage. It's about households, relationships. It's about the household gospel. So marriage is really important. But then he goes on, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life. It's not just about marriage. Paul, in the same flow of language, moves to parent-children relationships. And Paul, as a good Jewish dude, knows that from the ten words, the ten commandments, the big ones, that this is a command to honor your parents that has a blessing, right? This is the one that is the only one in the ten commandments. This command is the one that carries a blessing, to honor your father and your mother. Now, as parents, we all say, Hey, freaking men, right? Like, honor me, right? But I'll say this. We are lacking honor in our culture. There's a lack. And here's the thing. I'm a skeptic at heart, too, so I get a little skeptical at times. But we're not necessarily promised long life, but what Paul would say here is that you will enjoy the life you're given when you act out of honoring your parents. Now, now it's kind of crazy. Because of the role in the Greco-Roman society, to even think of this mutual, mutuality between kids and parents is quite subversive. Just like male and female, Paul, you gotta put yourself in their place. It is crazy. Then he goes and says this, to the fathers, fathers, do not exasperate your children. There's a word. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That word exasperate is probably better translated for us. I think it's a hard word to wrap your mind around. Probably better provoke. So don't, dads, don't provoke your children to anger. This is so, so important. Is instruction for the male, the father in this uh, passage. Now, it's interesting. Whose responsibility is it to bring them up? Yours. So I'll just get on a little soapbox. Like the church is an amazing supplement to what we do here. Kids are learning incredible things right now and having a blast. But whose job is it to raise my kids in the way of Jesus? Soul job. It's my job. I don't exasperate my children, and it's one of my one of my roles, and Heather as well in partnership. It's up to us to bring them up in the way of Jesus. And can I just say, we need mothers and fathers in the church. So some of you will choose maybe not to have children. That's you know, may, people make that decision, but we all have spiritual children when we're a part of a community, and part of it is bringing them up in the way of Jesus. And so this mutuality, this submission, the submission is not just for husband and wife, it's for parents and children. And then we get to something that can seem so disconnected to us. I'll just say this, uh, we don't have a ton of time for this, but slavery in, uh, and servanthood in the first century was much different than what we think at times as the transatlantic slave trade. Um, there were different dynamics here around slaves, but you gotta understand the relationship between master and servant or slave was typically not good. And then Paul says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with their, uh, when their eye is on the Lord, but as to slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do whether they are slave or free. And then he says this. I mean, if that's crazy, he says to masters, treat your slaves in the same way. 
Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is, the, is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. So basically, in the Roman Empire, the whole economy and everything in that culture ran on slave power. The massive amounts of architecture and engineering and everything that happened in that day was all carried out by slaves. Luce Lombardi, a friend, he's a part of our network of churches, he wrote a little commentary on Ephesians. He says this, it was a way of life and culture that no one dared to question. Um, it is estimated that at the height of its operation, the empire needed half a million slaves each year to maintain its infrastructure. It would be easy to criticize Paul here for continuing to accept such treatment of uh, humanity in his culture. The problem is that we're not fully aware of the degree to which slavery was a part of his world. N.T. Wright, the great uh, theologian, says this, Paul was not starting from scratch and attempting to design a new way for the world to run. Everyone would be liberated from every form of slavery in the age to come. But in a world where many Christians were slaves, most Christians were slaves in this day, working for non-Christian masters, it was worse than uh, useless to suggest instant emancipation. Paul wisely chose a different what this is saying is, for some of us, we go, why didn't just the whole thing just in an instant just be abolished? And what these theologians would say is that it was so ingrained in the culture, God is stooping and trying to work with them in this moment, and the radical call for slaves and masters to honor, honor each other was like, just as incredible as it was for male and female in marriage to, to submit each other, this call to honor each other in this relationship, servant and master, was unthinkable. And so as Christians, most Christians as slaves in the empire, it was incredible. I know now we're in our moment and there's still lots of things politically and all things going on and it will only heighten in the next number of months to the election cycle in the US. But I'll just say this, God is working with his people here and he's doing this in community to show that we all honor and serve one another. We'll probably talk about this more down the road, but I just want us to see that it's not just marriage, it's all household relationships come under the submission to each other. So think about it for a second. You okay? You all right? I know it's a lot, lots of quotes, but I think it's necessary to talk about this in its proper light. Now think about it. You're in your home church in Ephesus, at the weekly Lord's Supper, you bring your best pasta dish. Someone brings ice cream sandwiches. And you get this letter from Paul. And you get around and it's, okay, we've got a letter from Paul. We're going to read it. Listen up. And it says this. Everyone, everyone submit to one another. What? You, you, you'd hear this letter being read. All of you, not just wives to their husbands, but everybody submit to one another. What? And then wives to your husbands and husbands to your wives. And you'd be thinking, no, like, no way. There's no way Paul is saying this. And children, submit to your parents. And parents, you submit to your children. And the, you, the parents are probably thinking, what the, you know, I'll let you fill in whatever you want to fill in there. Oh, and by the way, and slaves, submit to your masters and masters to your servants. You'd be thinking, are you serious? Like, what is this guy smoking? What is going on with this Paul guy to think that this is the way? You know, it's interesting. What turned the empire upside down in the first century? There's a guy named Rodney Stark who's done a lot of research on this. Why this little group of Christians in an upper room within a, a few, a couple generations was the dominant re, uh, religion in the empire? 
He goes on and he talks a lot how, about how what turned the empire upside down was how Christians treated sex, money, and power, the gods of our day, how they treated it so differently, and how they submitted to each other out of love. The whole world flipped upside down because they created, uh, treated sex, money, and power so differently, and this idea, this ethos of submitting to each other and everything turned it upside down. You with me? This is what lit the world on fire for the name of Jesus. And so what we do in our homes is of big significance to the kingdom of God in mutual submission. Now, to close, you have to ask yourself, is this the better way? Like with now kind of understanding some of our preconceived ideas around headship and submission and some of the ways we've fashioned these things in our mind, we have to ask ourselves, is what we're reading here the better way? Is this instruction right here better than women being treated as property and a commodity for divorce? Is this the better way? Is what we read here, is this better than hostility between parents and children? Is what we read here, is this better than masters treating their servants like garbage, treating them like they're not even human? Is this better what we read is, uh, the question is, is mutual submission to everyone better? And the answer is, come on, people. The answer is yes. Paul, he'll get talked about, and I, I love our institutions, by the way. We live in an amazing city, but Paul will get talked about in the classroom. But Paul was light years ahead. And the Jesus way is the best way. So no, you know, so no headship or submission talk, eh? I just think, man... You do not get what these texts are leading us to. The Jesus way is better. And now for us, we enter into this and we actually practice it. We live it. We live it out. My encouragement to you is in marriage relationships that this would be a season just from what we've talked about where that could be cultivated. Uh, to be honest, it's so funny to even talk about this even with my week. I think, what did I say this week really nicely? I really should have married myself that came out of my mouth this week. I understand. You're like, really? Yeah. I thought you were a nice guy. I, I think I am, but, you know, uh, I come to this text again and I realize the cultivation that needs to take place in my own submission. Um, parents and children, so important, what we're trying to cultivate. Um, these relationships, I hope it lights a fire in us as we go to live out the way of Jesus. You with me? You with me?